Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. story that stretches from the earliest civilization to the present day, as do tales of the underclass rising up against their oppressors. But how do you know that you're an oppressor yourself? Are you part of the solution, or part of the problem? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and bowler hat, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's webinar covers the 1973 British horror film Deathline, released in the United States as Raw Meat, and starring Donald Pleasance with Christopher Lee. My guest is Paul Morris, and you join us in our recording booths at opposite ends of the Fleet Line. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? How have you been in our, in our new situation, our new normal? To be perfectly honest, I've, um, I've been coping quite well, because you know, I'm quite a self-contained sort of chap. Maybe that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're yeah. doing well. Thank you. Um, now, obviously, there are lots of uh, parts of life that we've forced to change, we've forced to compromise to accommodate this this whole situation that we're dealing with now. And something that people are probably not looking forward to going back to is uh, using public transport. Everyone mm. crowding into a bus or a train. Yeah, it'll take know, all the fun out of it, won't it? With all the you know, all the people you know who are doing God knows what. At the best of times in London, it's not great. But you know what's even worse than uh, the uh, you know being in a cabin, a, a tube train with someone who might be ill. It's what? stepping off the train and being snatched off the platform by a cannibal. Oh yeah, that's it. I knew there was something. And mm. with that in mind, what can you tell me about Deathline? Uh, what I can tell you more than I um I could. I could a day ago. This is another one of your cult classics, isn't it? Do you think it's, do you think it's fair of me to have uh, to consider it quite obscure? No, I chose it Even. because it is obscure. Mm. Well, it's it's not so much obscure as it's not as well known as I think it should be. Yes, I, I get that impression. It's an interesting film, isn't it? And um, without giving too much away about my feelings, uh, the fact that it had, went under a different title in America, I think, tells me something about the difficulty. They must have had marketing it because it's not what you're ex- you would be expecting, is it? Possibly as a an, an average horror-loving cinema goer, or or as a marketing executive for a top film studio. Raw Meat is an attempt to drag more punters in, yes. but it's rather misleading. So I much prefer Deathline, which is still a bit melodramatic for for what we get, but but less so. Um. 
Yes, it was released in the US in 1973, and the marketing particularly focused on the, the violence aspect, and the promotional art had dozens of blank-eyed zombies spilling out onto a, a train platform, uh, as though this was a, a George Romero zombie picture. Indeed. Or, or one of his feebler uh, imitators. But uh, the creature isn't a zombie. The creature is a a man, very much a human man, and there's only one of him. And even then, the threat he poses is so, frankly, minimal hmm. compared to, you know, a thousand zombies pouring out onto the Piccadilly line. Yeah. And it's, it's the wrong sort of minimal if you're the if you're the one person he happens to get hold of. But you yes. know, if you amortise his his behaviour <laughs> over time, it's minimal. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the point is partly that he's been able to get away with it for so long because no one knows it's happening. Exactly, and that's partly uh, because numerically he's not making much of an impression, but possibly also because of the sorts of people he's picking up. Yeah. Do you detect an undercurrent of, of, of social satire I, in, at play? Uh, well, that's about half my notes, is unpacking <laughs> the uh, satirical and social intent of the movie. I, I found it interesting looking at the, um, the personnel who worked on it. Um, Gary Sherman, the director, co-devised the, uh, devised the original story. Uh, he was actually an American... And this was his feature debut. He previously worked on commercials in both America and the UK. And the script is by Kerry Jones, and it is his only writing credit, and only credit of any kind on the Internet Movie Database. He generally worked as an advertising executive who also wrote poetry. Ah, so he's real. That was going to be my first question. Kerry Jones is a real person, yes. It's not a pen name. And um, have you any idea how he got involved in in this (laughs) <laughs> this project uh, I'm afraid I don't There's, there have been limits to my uh, research on, on that score but um, Sherman appears to have been uh, quite established as a commercials director in the UK Right. had an idea for this movie and uh, brought it to producer Paul Maslansky who would go on to be enormously successful in Hollywood with films like Return to Oz Cop and a Half The Russia House uh, Damnation Alley and the entire Police Academy franchise. <laughs> Commercially very successful. Um, and um, they seem to have fallen in with Jones, written the script and um, got it working. I mean, it helps that it's it's a comparatively low-budget production um, that managed to snare no lesser talent than Donald Pleasance to play the lead role, uh, in a role where he gets to play not protagonist not hero, but not villain. And yet, somehow, he is still the lead character in the movie. He's he's the star name, so he's promoted top. But So when you say they somehow manage to snare him, I, isn't he famous for never actually turning anything down? I think that's probably the case. I mean, at the time, he was doing a lot of British horror pictures. I think From Beyond the Grave is one that he did a year or two later. Yeah. So he was clearly happy just to take work whenever whenever it was offered. Um, but clearly, having having looked at this, he saw the potential for a great character part. This isn't just, you know, something where he, like, um, is it um, the mutations 
you know, Tom Baker was from nineteen seventy three, four. It was a very low grade horror picture he did, and he did one a few years earlier called Puma Man, which is also absolutely <laughs> terrible, where he plays a supervillain. And they're, they're absolute, you know, absolutely awful pictures. But Deathline gives him a real character and the opportunity of a real performance yep. within the context of. And he seizes it by the, by the throat or the neck or the horns or. I, or oh, any appendage you can get hold of. I mean, he's and... he's become iconic for playing Blofeld in You Only Live Twice and becoming the archetypal Bond villain. But this, I think, is his greatest work. <laughs> and he's he's done other... You know, he did... He was in... Was it the Mayor of... No, the Barchester Chronicles. So he's done oh, yes. Thomas Hardy adaptations. He's worked with Woody Allen, worked with many, many great directors. But this low-budget horror movie, I think, is his finest work because... He may not be the protagonist or the hero, but he's the star. I did come away, not some, not even just wishing that there were more adventures of Inspector Calhoun, but slightly surprised that nobody ever suggested it. All well, the situations you could put him into. I was, I was going to raise this subject with you, because I know you have connections to production people. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how about you and I write an Inspector Calhoun series <laughs> for someone? Yeah, no, he's a fascinating character. And um, while I, I assume it's all as scripted, <clears throat> I don't really get the impression he's ad-libbing, although who knows, but he's certainly ad-libbing a lot of mannerisms to, to build it up, isn't he? Uh, bits like um, fishing the tea bag out of his teacup with a dart. Yeah, yes, it, yeah, exactly. It makes me wonder if maybe there are a couple of references to tea in the script and he just wor- then worked them into every, every scene he possibly could. And but it's a strange character. He's got... He's, He's got the gruffness of your archetypal maverick, <laughs> maverick cop, hasn't he? But he's, but also a very uh, and the sardonic sense of humour isn't unusual. But the sarcasm is a bit over the top, he's... and that very peculiar laugh, he <laughs> very unnerving laugh he's introduced. Uh, but but when you're not... but all of that is sort of balanced by having this sharp intelligence suddenly firing questions about economics. Hmm. At the eco- at the economics student, and then when finding the um, the man's lair at the end of the film, he just says quietly to himself, "What a way to live." He he well, he, he can't help but feel moved by the, the tragedy of the circumstances. Indeed. So it's, yes, it, it, even after an hour and a half of him, I wasn't entirely sure I could put my finger on on the character, which is kind of why I'd like to see a bit more. Hmm. But he's just has elements of all sorts of different um, rude policemen we've seen. But there's something... I think there's more hidden than in many comparable characters. Because and he, more suggested. He, he's the star, but the story doesn't revolve around him. It focuses no. on his investigation, and all the character bits are kind of fun... Uh, extra elements and extra window dressing for that storyline. If we're going to discuss this in order, then we'll get to that later on, I guess. Won't yeah. We? Just how much he contributes to the plot, which, which is a different matter entirely. Um, the movie starts with a a great opening title sequence of a civil servant trawling around um, Soho, looking at porn. Yes, uh, in, repeatedly. Uh, in shop windows, while the most fantastically sleazy, ominous jazz plays in the background. That's it. Sleazy, ominous, 
seedy, mildly discordant. It's, it sets the tone. The, the music itself doesn't come back again, but it certainly set the, uh, a particular tone that, um, that the rest of the mm. film, it, it leaves you with that, that rather unnerved feeling um, long after we've moved out of Soho. Yeah. But it also sets up the, the theme of the movie, which is the exploitation of the poor and vulnerable by the ruling classes, of having this very smartly dressed, bowler-hatted civil servant creeping around Soho, looking at all the, the flesh pots, and um, propositioning a woman in the tube station who then kicks him in the shin. She does. Yeah. Yes, class warfare. And, of course, it's James Cossins, who uh, was, of course, the speedboat salesman in uh, Faulty Towers Hotel Inspectors. <laughs> right, OK. And the judge in A Fish Called Wanda. Well, there you go. Ah, yes, yes. I, um, I thought I rec recognised the face. The music is by Will Malone, um, who's... Um, quite a name. Um, you may be aware of some of his music from having worked with some of the following uh, artists. The Who, Rod Stewart, Richard Harris, Rick Wakeman, Black Sabbath, Cliff Richard, Jerry Rafferty, Nina Cherry, Simple Minds, Massive Attack, Peter Gabriel, Depeche Mode, Seal, The Verve, Leo Sayer, Charles Aznavour, Kylie Minogue, Faithless, M People, Embrace, Ash, The Seahorses, The Lighthouse Family, The Spice Girls, Uncle, Gabrielle, Skunk and Nancy, Dido, Take That, Manson, Gomez, Vanessa May, Natalie Imbruglia, Oasis, Ronan Keating, Basement Jacks, Desiree, Jeff Beck, Westlife, Ian Brown, Sia, Charlotte Church, Shane Ward, Corin Bailey Ray, Hardfire, Leona Lewis, Ollie Mercy, Leanne Rhymes, Joss Stone, and Adele. That's quite a list. And what have they got in common apart from the fact I like 80% of them? Uh, he is an expert in string arrangements. Um, unfinished, ah. Massive Attack's Unfinished Sympathy, uh, The right. Verbs, Bittersweet Symphony. Well, that's his he, fault. Is he it? he created the <laughs> string arrangements for those pieces. By which you mean he created he did the orchestral version of Out of Time or whichever song, whichever Rolling Stone song it is that the Verve then sampled, much to their no, regret. He's, no, he's worked directly with um, with the band and with Richard Ashcroft because Ashcroft's later uh, song with Uncle Lonely Soul he orchestrated the strings for that as well. Mm. So he's. Quite the the notable uh, fellow. What a guy! Yeah. Basically, there's no one who's recorded music in the UK he hasn't worked with. <laughs> even Nana Cherry. Even Nana Cherry. Even Simple Minds. Yeah, not known for their string arrangements. No. I've no idea if they are or not. Even, <laughs> I just thought I'd say that. Even the Lighthouse family. Yep. Well, you know, you've got to earn a crust somehow. So um, the civil Is servant it? character. Uh, yes. ne whose name we later discover is James Manfred, OBE, goes into Russell Square tube station to get the train um, after being kicked in the shin by the lady of the night. Um, he's approached by an unseen figure that um, creeps up on his back. And when a couple exit from one of the trains, they find him lying on the stairs. They uh, do. And we quickly see their dynamic, that she is quite posh and upper crust, but quite compassionate, whereas he's from New York, he's from New York and says that, oh, you step over these guys all the time over there. Yeah. So I, I did think immediately, if, if we've only got an American 
co-lead for, I don't know, for marketing reasons, then they do at least set up quite... He's not just American and they forget about it. It's part of his character right yeah. from the very beginning. They um, they talk to the guard and he eventually gets them to... Uh, he gets a police officer and they go back down. But when they go back to the platform, they find that Manfred has vanished. He has. And hours later, when they go back to their flat, um, Alex and Patricia are still worried about what happened. Or rather, she is. He's he's perfectly happy to put things out of his mind, whereas she is concerned about what might have happened. Yes, for some reason, they've come away with one of them thinking he was merely drunk and the other thinking he was dying. Which I never quite <laughs> got my head around. Well, is he is I, he being too New York and underplaying the seriousness, or was she being unnecessarily hysterical? I mean, clearly he is dying, so she's right. But if it was that obvious, wouldn't they both have seen it? But it's all right. I rolled with it. And we're then immediately introduced to Inspector Calhoun, played by Donald Pleasance, who uh, bursts into his own office, banters with his second-in-command, Rogers, played by Norman Rossington, who's mm. better, better known for comedies. Um, the... Manfred missing persons case has landed on his desk and that the whole scene sets up the rest of the movie he, he's arguing about tea bags he fishes it out of his cup with a with a dart he uh, the mention of missing persons tips off his memory and he goes looking off in a card index he's making phone calls he's everything gets set up from this point on he's able to connect the missing persons case to two other people who've gone missing he works out who Manfred is from looking in who's who. Um, and he calls up Manfred's own office to find out if he's there. <laughs> at which point he puts on a posh and says, Oh, is, is, uh, is James Manfred there? I'm calling, I was calling to see if he's available for lunch. So, oh, oh, he's av- oh, he's not there, is he? Oh, my name. Princess Anne hangs up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very unusual um, methodology, isn't it? But you, you get a sense of the character straight away, that he's totally disinterested in authority, in uh, you know, the, the correct way of doing things. But he's got enough nous about him to connect things. Ah, that's like another case I recall. Goes and checks. Ah, right, I'll check that. So he's, he has his own way of investigating. That clearly works for him. As, as a character, he's got so many eccentricities that you... I think this is what I'm saying... It, it, you more often see a character like that working solo rather than in the establishment, in in the police force. They're the sort of person who wouldn't normally last long in with, in, with those sorts of routines and strictures than normally be. Well, maybe if it hadn't been for his temper, he'd be chief constable by now. This is true. I want to know if this is the beginning of the next phase of his career or if we're seeing a man in decline. Well, later on, where we see him at home, he's sleeping in a single bed. Hmm. And I always... A a gentleman of that age sleeping in a single bed suggests a sudden uh, reduction in circumstances. Yeah. But, you know, he's he's able to keep a pot of tea on his bedside table, so he's not completely (laughs) lost in all self-respect. But he does almost immediately spill it over himself. (laughs) And, And his last line of the scene is shouting to his assistant... Uh, WPC Marshall, where's my football coupon? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes. Um, Rogers goes to pick up Alex and Patricia and brings them back. And Colquhoun is somewhat suspicious of their behaviour as he's interrogating them. And says, oh, oh you're, uh, you're an economics student. Do you think we'll profit from the common market? And Alex, st- taken aback, stumbles to response about the ten-mile limit. Which point Colquhoun goes, mm, yes. Okay, well, anyway, back to back to talking about this case. It's completely un- unclear if this is a tactic to throw his <clears throat> the person he's interviewing off guard in case they slip, or just because his his mind is so flighty that he is constantly think- going off at tangents because he can't help himself. It feels more like a test that he's. Um, ah, third option. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> testing the. Um, the personality of the people he's talking to, that Alex is very strong and forthright in in his manner and his behaviour. So he sees if he if he fires him this question, sees if he can if he can cope with it, and also if he can give a sensible answer without blinking, which he can. So that will give him an indication, perhaps, of how trustworthy their testimony is going to be. Hmm. As Alex mentions that Manfred was holding his, holding out his wallet, and Colvin says, "Oh, it's bequeathing it to you, was he?" <laughs> and uh, eventually he's, you know, he says that you know they're, they're free to go, they haven't been arrested It's a nice touch isn't it because, sorry to interrupt but um, that sh- should be a plot point the fact that he's holding out his wallet as he's dead tells us we know why that is because it tells us what he was doing immediately before he was killed but nobody ever comes back to that they never work it out even when they find his body it's they know that he was down there. This man who, why would he have been down in the underground with the, with the common man? Hmm. He was, he died with his wallet in his hand, but nobody ever comes back to it. It's interesting. Well, it's, it's never really explained why that would be. My assumption would be that he was hoping to, you know, bribe the man into leaving him alone. Oh, I thought it was a hangover from when he'd been paying the, uh, the woman that he hoped to, who no. put him in the shins. He... Oh yes, he, does he does he pull his wallet out? Well, I, I must admit I didn't go back and check, but that was my brain drew a link from. She he did he did he got the money out, and then she stole it. She grabbed the notes, kicked him oh. in the shins, and ran off. Yes, so that's I think, right. I think that's what it is. Yes, you're right. So that does tie together then. But then I quite like. There's certainly not. I'm certainly not implying it's sloppy writing. I like the fact that we're then privy to a little detail that is brought up but never resolved. It's part of the... It happens again and again here, because we're in a world which is not as neat and, and dramatically contained as you might expect from a film of this genre. It has odd little digressions and, uh, and areas where it, where it refuses to, walk, to step into the clichés you're expecting and stick to some sort of bizarre realism. Mm. It's, it's telling a completely... A bizarre story, but it's couching it in such a believable and realistic environment that makes it much easier to engage with. It's not some um, troglodyte beast. It's not some supernatural creature that's doing these murders. It's just a man, and it's a man who's been through more pain and more trauma than most people could even imagine. And doesn't understand why what he's doing is wrong. I'll come back to that. 
Colquhoun is determined to investigate the disappearance himself, regardless of what MI5 thinks, because Manfred has connections to the intelligence community. While back home, Patricia and Alex are rowing over the whole situation, uh, particularly Alex's callous attitude to what happened to Manfred, uh, which ends with Patricia actually walking out on him. It does. We are in the... Of the three main strands of the film, we are in the most naturalistic section here. A whole film of just those two characters. I wouldn't necessarily... I'm going to be honest here. <laughs> I wouldn't no, necessarily no, I, I first in line, in line for that. But... Uh, I mean, that, the story is well well told. They're it, fleshed out more than they need to be. It's it's a believable little strand that then gets caught up in this whole other situation. Um, back in Colquhoun's office, he's being briefed by uh, an ex an expert from London Transport, played by everyone's favourite happy go lucky interviewee Clive Swift. You wouldn't believe the number of times I've seen he's popped up in when I've been watching. What well, I suppose I should archive classic telly over the last few weeks. My wife's wondering if she's ever going to get away from him. <laughs> <laughs> just a couple of weeks ago, he was just the, the bloke of keeping appearances to Mrs. Morris, and now suddenly <laughs> it seems like he was one of the most reliable character actors of of the seventies and eighties. Um, but he explains that um, when that part of the underground was being dug a hundred years earlier, uh, there was a cave in. And a number of the miners were trapped inside. And because women and men uh, worked side by side, they suggest that it's possible that there were survivors and that for a source of food, they would have eaten those who had already died. Yes. Now, this is an extraordinarily helpful combination of um, exposition and theorising on Clive Swift's behalf. Uh, (laughs) Whatever they're paying him, they need to double it because he solves the entire thing there and then if the rest of the characters did but know. It's interesting that that he does give the whole thing away for us just before we cut to proof that he's correct. Yes, it's it's an unusual subversion of the rule of show, don't tell because we're told... And then we're shown. <laughs> but we're given the information we need to... We're first given this bit of exposition that we need to understand so that the next bit makes sense. Because we have this very long sequence with no dialogue that's mostly one continuous shot showing what's actually happening. Which is, we start on the close-up of water dripping, we pan back to see a severed hand... Rats, maggots, finally Manfred, who appears to be uh, catatonic. Uh, We can hear his heartbeat. Uh, The sight of rotting and mutilated bodies with the music in the distance. Um, Bones, uh, an old lamp, boxes of candles. And finally, a diseased man wearing rags, caring for an equally ravaged woman who appears to be pregnant and then dies in the process of childbirth. That is what happens. As uh, you say, in, uh, I think, what two very long panning shots with a, a little fudge in the middle. Yeah. Rope, rope style, but extremely well done. 
Uh, I didn't quite appreciate how well done it was until we'd gone 360 or full circle yeah, it, and we'd it, come it, back to the hand which is now in the distance. Yeah. And I uh, realised they'd brought us, around, brought us around this whole room. It's it's a really impressive bit of work. And it's not so much a question of how did they manage that because clearly it's not impossible to do. And it's, you know, when you have a, com- a complete 360 degree set, you can do it. But it's doing it so well and so carefully choreographed. Hmm. It's so impressive. As you say, there is there is a cut. We move out into the passageway. And there's a long pull back down the passageway and finally onto the platform of a, a walled-in station and a huge wall of rubble that blocks the tunnel. And we, there is an audio flashback to the accident of people working, the roof collapsing and, and caving in, people screaming, and then people realising that they're buried alive, all done just with, with sound and with incoherent cries. Yes, the sound design is extremely good, isn't it? And um, both there and um, I th- think I don't know if it's before or after that bit, but where where the man breaks down after the death of his wife, and is and is just yelling into the into the darkness of the the tunnels. It was the first time I realised how clever they were orchestrating these effects, mm. puncturing the silence. Um, can I go back to the beginning there? So we suddenly switched from light comedy with back in the room of Inspector Calhoun to horror with a capital H. Yeah. I mean, just within the first few seconds, as you said, you've got rats and maggots and severed limbs, so they're, they're setting their stall up very quickly here. Um, I haven't seen, unlike you, I haven't seen every horror film ever made <laughs> throughout the, in, in the history of cinema. I... A couple of things. I, I, it all looked very realistic to me. I didn't really the prosthetics. Sorry, the makeup on the mo- human characters and the and the creation of these decaying corpses and and the, the mummified bodies and the two. It all looked very um, not just realistic but artfully done. I'm I'm used to the things being slightly slightly shonky in this era. Am I being unfair? Do you think this would have seemed particularly and also not just unusually well done for its era, but very strong for that time, do you think, or am I very brutal getting the context wrong? Hmm. No, no. The 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 film is, I think, quite uncompromising in showing the horror of it. There is a phrase that that I've heard before and that I like to use, which is Kensington gore. The way that Hammer, <laughs> the way that Hammer movies use gore and violence, the the blood is always a much brighter red. Yeah, the corpses are always dry shall we say you know the, <laughs> you know we don't we don't see you know decomposing things quite so much yeah um so that, so that's a little bit more sanitized um for the purpose of fantasy but here it's trying to show now that's fantasy this is reality this is all real none of this is supernatural all of this is plausible yeah and so having you know graphically decomposing corpses and severed limbs and when you see the close-up of the man, his face is covered in you know, weeping sores and broken skin. And you know, he's got clumps of hair missing where you know, bits of his skin are rotting away while he's still alive. And uh, it's, he's later diagnosed as having um, septicemia. So he's, you know, he's rotting from the inside. No white blood cells, I believe. Yeah. Is, so that, technically, is that technically a thing? I shouldn't think so. Um, <laughs> but 
given that he uh, he's he's probably the result of inbreeding in some way um and having been in an environment where the uh number of other people he'd be exposed to is very limited the fact that he he and his ancestors could survive with a very compromised immune system isn't totally implausible because they are mm. all in one bubble It's, yes, it's so it's, it's maybe not one hundred percent medically accurate, but there's enough there for it to be believable. Yeah, and because it's a slightly it was such an extraordinary idea, I think that it does need to be presented in a very realistic way to sell it to the audience. If it looked hokey, then it would it well for some it wouldn't mesh with the tone of the rest of the film. Yeah, and it would let down what they're the film is trying to do, which is not to be. Um, the living dead underground no i mean night of the living dead gone into similar problems but for being totally serious and realistic and not trying yeah. to be gothic and um you know the you know the, the frill wristed shirts and all that sort of thing um the man goes to manfred's body or manfred is still alive drags him over to his wife and slices open Manfred's throat feeding his blood to his wife to try and revive her I like to contrast the relationship between the man and the woman with the relationship between Alex and Patricia because while they are often arguing and at this point they've um, they've separated the man, you know, the man is at, you know he's by his by his wife's side holding her hand absolutely distraught at what's happening and what's going on and he's uh, he, weeping openly and doing everything he can to help her offering her the best medical care he's he's it, to hand yeah i mean clearly this is the cure all as far as he's concerned um but you know it's while the sophisticated uh, civilized characters are white uh, arguing with each other it's the primitive ones who are caring about each other. That is a very good observation. Um, Colquhoun and Rogers go to Colquhoun's, uh, go to Manfred's flat, and they basically have a look around, and it's almost as though they're casing the place. <laughs> and he does indeed, half jokingly suggest they steal some of his knickknacks at one point, don't they? Yeah, and. Um, Colquhoun examines his desk, finds that one drawer's locked. He goes, oh, suspicious bastard. And then, <laughs> and then picks up a paper knife and breaks it open. <laughs> um, Colquhoun also helps himself to a drink. <laughs> We're in the era of the police being considered closer to the criminals than they are to the, uh, the rest of the public, aren't we? With the Sweeney not far off. Well, I, th I thought you meant in the present day. <laughs> um... But yes, the uh, the image of the strong arm copper is certainly on the horizon, if not closer, back in 1972. So you know, Colquhoun's behaviour is not entirely out of keeping with what people would expect at the time. Um, they discover that there's a false bookcase in the room, which they manage to activate and find a little secret room with a TV monitor connected to a camera in the bedroom. Yes. It's interesting that sex stuff behind it. Well, of course, it is the 70s, isn't it? I mean, considering what the film we're in, it should be something gothic and macabre 
behind, but it's but it's not. It's just sleazy exploitation of of yep. the of the powerful uh, of the of the vulnerable by the powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point we get our special guest star, <laughs> um, Christopher Lee, in his one scene as Stratton Villiers of MI5, who breezes in and very politely and very calmly tells Colhoun that this is no longer up to him, this is now an MI5 matter, and that, why don't you go back to planting pot on people, and mind that you don't become a missing, <laughs> and mind that you don't become a missing person yourself. At which point, I... um, Colhoun simply mouths, fuck you. <laughs> During this scene, I had a smile on my face as big as the one on Christopher Lee's. One hilarious character just went... <laughs> I gather... Now, you're, you're going to tell me how he ended up in this film, aren't you? So uh, I did I, check I, this for myself. But, um... That um, he, he wanted to work with Donald Pleasance and he was impressed hmm. by the quality of the script. So he made time to film, the production, film his one scene, supposedly during his lunch hour. Um, and they wrote him they wrote him a character where he would not be overshadowed, where just in one scene he could hold his own with the extraordinary Calhoun. Yeah. Although, sadly, it's only right at the end that they're even in the same shot because Lee is nearly a foot taller than Donald Pleasance. <laughs> so framing them together was difficult, which is why only right at the end when uh, Stratton Villiers sits down on the couch just as uh, Colhoun and Rogers are leaving, are they actually in the same shot together? In there, is that, is that anything to do with why in their standoff or face-off, or whatever it is, they're both staring into the camera and we're sort of caught in the middle and both looking through us? Or is that, is that symbolic of what they represent on I, the different sides of this investigation? I, I think it's certainly stylistic that they're almost like they're making their case to the audience that... Um, Colhoun is, in his way, he's honest. But Villiers is is all very sort of urbane and calm, but he's just as bad as Colhoun in what he does. You know, he's he's a, he's a security services officer. Colhoun is a police officer. They're both really just doing the same job from different ends. But Colhoun's the one who's honest about it. And I checked, and I think that that's his real moustache. Ah. Because around the same time, Lee was filming Horror Express, in which he plays a Russian, and he has the same moustache. Right. Well, if he's on his lunch break, they probably didn't have time to apply a fake one, did they? No, they barely have time to uh, get him fitted for a bowler hat. Um, Alex is alone at home when Patricia comes back. Um to reconcile but then we cut to the caverns where the woman has now died and the man is distraught so we have that contrast again yes yes that she's going back to her partner with um apparently reconciling without talking about the, the whole situation at all whereas there is a much more open and honest display of emotion from the more primitive people with no words no it's what mm. what did you think of Hugh Armstrong's performance as the man? Oh, uh, terrific. <laughs> I mean, it, it was good in the sense that I didn't think about it. It wasn't 
It was big, but I don't think it was showy. It wasn't distracting. So uh, uh, he's definitely bringing out the the Frankenstein qualities, isn't he? Yes, there's a definite. Which I guess is what there. is the main thing it's called for, more than being scarifying. He has to be sympathetic, even while he's st- slamming spades into people's heads. Later in the film, where he has that one line of dialogue that he repeats over and over again, um, which which we'll get to, um, it really reminds me in a way of Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> where where Mind the Doors is his "I am Groot." He's mm. trying to make himself understood through this single phrase, and putting um, emphasis and meaning behind it, but can't make it understood. Yeah. Did you read who the original first choice was to play the man? I did come across that. It's true, is it? As far as you know? Apparently it's true. They were planning on... They did try to get Marlon Brando. Well, I can't quite imagine that. Apparently thinks we might have dodged a bullet there. I can't imagine Brando (laughs) playing a character like this in a British horror picture. I mean, he did accept a lot of weird roles in his career for no apparent reason. So he might well have just decided arbitrarily that it was worth a go. But he was also, I think, in the middle of making The Godfather. So <laughs> I yeah. don't think he would have been available anyway. But it's such an odd choice. I mean, I could imagine um, going for actors who are known for physical performance um, rather than a big star name. I mean, you don't need any more stars. You've got Donald Pleasance. You know, Donald Pleasance can open a movie. He was the Tom Cruise of 1971. Yes, was he? Well, I should think so. (laughs) The chap who did play the man, what can you tell me about him? Anything? Uh, He seems to have had uh, a fairly unexceptional but consistent acting career. I I should have double-checked his credits, but um, I forgot. I do do know, however, that he's interviewed on the Blu-ray release and speaks very highly of the film and um, and the people who worked on it. Oh, good. Um, Does he clean up well? Yes. Uh, he's, he's totally unrecognisable, you'll be pleased to hear. <laughs> um, not just because in real life he isn't a uh, diseased semi-human troglodyte, but uh, he also shaved off his beard. Oh, good. Um, maybe it's just a lockdown beard like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he couldn't go outside. <laughs> yeah, what, what a very timely moment to be discussing this film I hadn't thought of I that mean, Have you tried getting um, Tesco deliveries to uh, walled in London Underground stations? <laughs> um, yeah, the man is sort of almost driven mad with uh, despair goes out onto the platform stumbling and wailing around but um, climbs out carrying a shovel Yes. Is it, would it be too much of a digression to wonder about the backstory of this film? I wonder uh, how long... It, well, the, until the beginning of this film, there are two of, two of them. Do you think they've been... Uh, what do you think the largest their community has been? Is, do you think it's been a steady decline since the, the incident? Or have there only ever been two at a time, like the, like the Sith, <laughs> I think for several generations? I think there were probably a, f- a few more, and then when the first generation had children that would have enlarged their numbers so it might have flourished for a while but Hmm. the enclosed environment the bad diets the probably polluted water 
the rampant disease and the limited food supply, as you say, you know, they if they if they eat their dead, then they're also gaining you know bacteria and diseases and God knows what from the bodies. So it and it and there's also the possibility of, of incest and genetic disorders and that's just going to whittle their numbers down further and further and further. So there might have there might have been a, a boom in population after ten or twenty years. I mean the concept of that doesn't even bear thinking about. But um after a century um just the the environment can no longer sustain them because it's it's like there being a closed biosphere almost. I do think that little the panning shot across their tomb with the um the the dead of previous generations decorated with whatever nice shiny things yeah that have been handed down to them is one of the nicest little details that they'd that they'd sort of somehow retained or developed a a cultural respect for the dead. Hmm. That you know these these and these sort of tiny little like shiny like you know, lids of of ta- toffee tins or you know these tiny little discarded items that they've that they've placed on these bodies as almost holy totems. It's isn't I mean, yeah, it's an interesting side digression to just how quickly it would take for humanity to to revert back to primitive you know stone age mentality. Without getting too deep, it is talking about the thin veneer of civilization. Yes, that which separates human behaviour from uh, from from the animals. There's a very good film from around the same time called The Blockhouse, um, which is Peter Sellers' most depressing film, apart from uh, <laughs> the, the fiendish plot of Doctor Fu Manchu. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 <clears throat> excuse me, it's Sellers' best drama in that it's about a group of um, World War Two prisoners of war working in a labour camp, who, um, as the D-Day invasion begins on the Normandy coast... No, sorry, they're not prisoners of war. They're um, like local local French people. Um, uh, and the, the, the bombing begins on the, the coastal uh, installation where they're working. They run and hide in a nearby bunker, um, but there is a direct hit on the entrance to the bunker, and it seals them inside, and they're buried alive inside this place. They discover that there is food, there is thousands of bottles of wine, they've got hundreds of candles, there is uh, a thin ventilation shaft so that they have air and the place is huge, but they are completely entombed inside with no possibility of escape. And the film is about the subsequent years that these men spend underground um, and what they do to try and retain who they are and a shred of civilization. How can you continue to survive in a world without hope? And uh, is there any more optimistic about the chances than than Deathline? So, uh, there are a couple of characters including Sellers who decide that the the best and most reasonable option is to commit suicide. And the film ends with Sellers' character cutting his wrists and then putting his wrists inside a bag of flour because he doesn't want to make a mess with the blood. Good God. And as he dies, he blows out the candle. 
and the film ends with two men still alive, now in total darkness because the candles have run out, still trying to make themselves heard above ground. The story is actually based on, a, on real events. Supposedly, um, after years of stories of you know, haunted hills nearby a town on the Eastern Front, it was discovered that a supply bunker there had been sealed. And when it was unsealed, they found two men still alive inside, ten years after the end of the war. Um, they had been living in total darkness for several years. Both were blind. One died of shock as soon as he came outside, and the other died in hospital the following day. <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> Which is which is That's... why we should be going for our daily outdoor exercise. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> what a lot to take in. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, there are some workmen working on the platform at Russell Square Station. There's but some sort of power cut. And um, one disappears off behind the corner. And when he comes back, he's got a shovel sticking out of his head. He has. Um, the moment where this this film seems most like the sort of schlock you might be expecting from the poster or or the title. Yes, um, I, I I suspect that it's the sort of moment that was thrown in to keep producers happy to make it marketable. The trailer's rather good in that it deliberately holds back on many of the the more violent elements, and then says at the end, "Oh, sorry, that's all we can show you." <laughs> which isn't hugely appropriate for what the film is, but it's a great way of marketing the movie. Hmm. This is all we, oh, we can't show you any more than that. Um, so one of, the, one of the women is killed with a shovel. Another one is stabbed, st runs straight through with a broom handle. Mm -hmm. And the third is taken back to the cavern. Um, while Colquhoun gets a phone call at home in the middle of the night um, that there's been a another death at... Russell Square, pours himself a cold cup of tea before getting out of bed <laughs> and knocking several things over in the process. And he goes down to the um, mortuary to look at the dead body, which he says helps settle the cornflakes. <laughs> um, yes, it's interesting. It's interesting, really, as somebody watches a lot of these uh, police procedural murder mystery shows, that uh, we have the policeman with the mordant sense of humour. It's normally the funny pathologist who's making those sorts of like gags. But Calhoun is such a force that of course obviously it's him. Yeah. And we have and we have a straight uh, mortician for some reason. So it's it's not so much that it's subverting the cliche, but it's it's almost as though Calhoun's personality is trying to bend the film into <laughs> making him the star. It's at this point that I've made a note, round about this point, that it really feels like three different films in, intertwined. The, the tone is so different between, between the, rather, you know, the naturalistic relationship drama of the, the two students, this comic thriller world, which is where everything is gravitating around Calhoun, and the surreal horror down underground. I'm starting to wonder how they're ever going to come together. But all three um, are 
that the tone is just right on all three. And when it cuts from one to the other, it's not as jarring as you might feel. There is there is a continuity of of style between all three. And yes. there is there is a seriousness in the investigation strand. Even though Colhoun makes jokes, he's he's taking this seriously as a police investigation. He's doing his job properly. Um and the 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 horror of the the underground element is such that you almost have to laugh at it because the you can't even bear thinking about such a situation in real life. So that there are, I think, um, threads you can connect emotionally between yeah. them, not, not, not just sort of as a as a as a single film, but um, visually they all look quite grotty. So that that's another linking. The whole film has this There's... patina of grease. <laughs> I mean, even the, the the nice remastered Blu-ray, which looks great, it still feels like oh, it's deliberately supposed to look a li- there's this 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 film on everything. I think it's only Manfred's house um, that's, that looks nice. Yeah, not that I'd want to live there either. But because yeah. bec- be- what, because of the spying, <laughs> because, <laughs> because of all the sex, beca- sex be- things, because of the creepy sex room. Yeah, I'd never be. Yeah, I don't be quite sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> what was behind the next bookcase? Um, and their their flat is the, Alex and Patricia's ha- uh, flat is very small and cramped. I wouldn't want to sleep where they are. That must be there must be a draft coming through those windows. They, they didn't look like they were shutting properly. Mm-hmm. I would just imagine the condensation running down the the inside of the window onto their heads as they sleep. It's just oh, well that makes that was more upsetting to me than the than the uh, deserted tube station. Well, that's almost uh, a like a match cut there from the condensation running down the windows to the dripping water in um, mm. in the cavern. But um, Colhoun is, of course, delighted that this dead body has turned up because if someone's been murdered in Russell Square, that's a police matter and that puts him back on the case regardless <laughs> of what Stratton Villiers wants. Yeah. Um so A and P, uh, Alex and Patricia are having a fry up at home, while the man is scrambling over piles of rubble carrying a lamp. And that's one of my favourite shots in the film: is this distant, silhouetted figure holding an old oil lamp, climbing over rubble. There's something so sinister and unnerving about it. He has some method of um, capturing the oil, doesn't he? He's or is he recycling it? There's some. He fills the lamp at the beginning of the scene. Yes, there's it's some ancient Looks, yeah, canister. Like, whether it's half something mechanical and half something totemistic, it's not entirely clear. Rogers goes to the bookshop where Patricia works to ask her some more questions. Um, whilst Colhoun goes back to the. Uh, uh, oh, Colhoun is he still? Is he still at the mortuary? Has he gone back anywhere? Because his his first line is, "How are you doing, Dracula?" <laughs> Where they discover that there are four blood samples from the scene of the crime of the three men and one other, with the other one being highly anemic. That's quick work. That's, I didn't know they were so advanced in the early seventies. Well, that's when the NHS was properly funded. <laughs> That'll be it. 
Um, trying to read my own notes here. Uh, I think it's Rogers wants Alex to positively identify Manfred as having been at the station. So he's gone to the bookshop. Whilst the man finds a watch that he then gives to his wife as a gift. I think I'm getting this all out of sequence, actually. No, that's right, because um, that's the, for the burial culture that they have. This sort of belief that system that they have. Alex and Patricia go to eat at a cafe where they're talking about going to the movies. And he suggests that they go and see The French Connection. Huge hit of the time. But she doesn't want to because she thinks it's too violent. <laughs> and I really like that as a, a self-aware reflexive comment on the movie. That, oh no, I don't want to get involved in this 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 story because it's you know it's too violent. It's people running around and being shot, whereas you know elsewhere in the movie, people are being horribly murdered and you know pulled limb from limb and having their throats cut, and that's in inverted commas real life. And she's involved in that, whether she wants to be or not. Yes, they are. They're about to um, be thrust back into that world, aren't they? Yeah. Despite their best attempts. Um, she's also conf uh, Alex is confused about the lack of coverage of Manfred's apparent disappearance so Patricia explains to him what a D notice is um, and Alex speculates that maybe Manfred is going to be found at the bottom of the Thames wearing a concrete bowler hat yep you can take the you can take the boy out of America but I, I, I like I like that bowler hats seem to be a sort of almost like a oh. recurrent totem in the movie because you have Manfred wearing one, you have Stratton Villas wearing one. Right at the end of the movie, the bowler hat comes back as a yep. an indicator. And of course, he calls it a bowler hat because he's American. Well, normally he'd call it a derby. I was more I was just referring to the fact that he puts the emphasis on bowler rather than on the hat. Oh, they have a habit but putting the emphasis. On the adjective, on the qualifier, rather than on the noun. Mm. Patricia also notes about when they were in the station that she thinks they were lucky because whatever whatever it was that Manfred saw that made him so frightened was probably watching them. Yes. Mm. Um, Colquhoun gets a call in his office <laughs> and isn't the dialogue something along the lines of <laughs> he answers the phone, says, hello? No, it's a man called Ironside. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he ever answers a straight question with, with a simple affirmative, does he, in the entire film? No. It's always sarcastic when there's the slightest opportunity for him to be. It's... I, I never quite... And it never gets old because it's... Because um, <laughs> they're quite well, nicely written and enthusiastically performed. Because the character is so, you know, running running against what was the tone. I mean, think about the context of police drama at the time. Dixon of Doc Green was still running. Zed cars were still running. So there was still the notion of the the honourable British police officer, or the um, the indefatigable uh, detective. And in comes Colquhoun, who is rude to everyone, including his superiors cannot answer a straight question is you know, makes prank calls as part of his own investigation but because he's got a good because we've established he's got a good memory he asks the right questions and 
he works hard on his case, he gets the right results. I think that makes an interesting contrast that he's he's someone who is out of his time because he's about five or ten years too early. And yet um, that sort of maverick genius, which he his actions tell us he is, those those characters aren't normally as Weasley on working class as he he is. They would normally have a you know the, the Sherlock Holmes figure would be have a, a dignity that would raise mm. him above his situation. But he is <laughs> this man has no dignity whatsoever, as we'll see later in the pub scene. One could also just one could almost describe him as Columbo if he stopped giving a fuck. Yes, that's, that would be the nearest comparison, wouldn't it? So as as he's talking on the phone, he's still doing his football coupon, and um, he's told that the diagnosis is that the the fourth blood sample has septicemic plague, which is clearly quite serious. Hmm. So his response is to knock off for the night and go out to the pub with his second in command. Yes, and can I just say that? Again, they have. You're right that he is. He's conducting this investigation the right way. He knows it's for a start. He knows it's worth investigating. He's making the right connections. He's drawing links with previous disappearances. He's doing everything right, but they never quite connect up in a way that actually affects the plot. All the clues are leading to where to where Clive Swift suggests things are going quite early on but I, I'm not convinced it actually prepares them for what they get what they find at the end even though as I say from our perspective all the clues are there well in context it would be easy for Colhoun to dismiss this story about people being buried alive as you know some ghouls horror story but um, uh, any uh, mishap a hundred years earlier at that same station was is you know, an interesting historical footnote. But it's only when they actually need to go down into the underground and they bring him, they bring the historian with him, that they actually start listening and start to realise, oh, this that thing could really be true. Before then, it's it's so far fetched that it wouldn't be taken seriously. It's something I haven't quite got my head around. I don't mean it as a, as a criticism, but the plotting, the way in which facts are presented both to the characters as part of their investigation and to the audience in terms of what we know at any given moment isn't as tight. The, cause and the, the chain of cause and effect isn't as clear as you would normally expect it to be. So and I can't work out how much of that is deliberate and, to, and a sign of the messiness of real life as opposed to the nice neat way that things are structured A to B to C to D in, in your normal detective fiction. There is a certain jump towards the end, um, I'll, I'll grant you, in terms of um, suddenly the police arriving at the, uh, the buried station. But I, I think that by that point one can... Uh, one can assume that there is a, that there is the the jump being made by the by by the investigators that uh, 
there's been a string of disappearances connected to the station, stories of people being buried alive. So there's there's extra tunnels there. So and now someone's gone missing again, and the, and she's connected to the whole thing. So mm. well, everything is connected to the to this station. And you know maybe someone's kidnapping people and taking them down there. You know some you know some you know normal human person. Yeah. Is, is making use of this buried I, installation. I almost feel like the way it's written, the way the detective strand, the Calhoun strand, is written, it's almost as if it belongs to a version of this film which doesn't contain the scenes of the man, where that's kept from the audience until the end, and we and it's the, and all the little clues that Calhoun's been given are also there for us to start following that train of thought. I wonder what could link all these people, what could link everything here. Well, and and. For us to be as surprised when by the denouement well, th- as the rest of them are. I, I, well, I think that would have been a mistake because... It goes, oh, it's a different film entirely, of yeah, course. It, 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 goes, it goes back to the old maxim of the bomb under the restaurant table. Because um, if a bomb under a restaurant table goes off, what's more suspenseful? Whether or not you know the bomb is there already. If you know the bomb is there, then you have the suspense of waiting for it to go off. And then the shock when it does. But if you don't know it's there, you just have the shock. Hmm. So if you establish early on the existence of the man and this underground civilization, and then you have the other characters working towards it, you have the suspense of knowing that this is there and what's the man going to do next? You know, uh, you know, What's his thinking? Who could the next victim be? And you also have the police story of them closing in on him and tracking him down. And then... Later on, when Patricia is kidnapped, you have the third element mixed in. So it's now moving from three different directions towards the climax. So yes, this is a suspense film rather than a linear detective story, even though it has a detective story within it. So we're back to the, what we said earlier about there being three almost completely different films it's, running in parallel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's three stories of different genres, but yeah. they're all connected and they're all moving they're towards they're all moving in the same direction towards a single point they are interesting um so while uh Calhoun and Rob Rogers have gone out to the pub we see Alex and Patricia walking out of a theater so again it's the contrast between class distinctions um and they they take the two back to their station but um, Alex accidentally leaves some books on the train, goes back to get it. The door's closed and he gets stuck on the train. Yep, nicely done. And just as Patricia is watching the train pull out of the station, she's grabbed by the man. Yep, terrifying. Uh, Colquhoun and Roberts are in the pub. And we were saying before how it didn't feel like the dialogue was ad-libbed. <laughs> I do feel that for this scene, it wasn't ad-libbed. But Donald Pleasance and Norman Rossington were probably worked out through like some rehearsals or um, some uh, you know, run-throughs of scenes how they were going to go because it's very loose, rough scenes yes, you... as, as they're clearly getting drunk. Even a novice writer who's more used to poetry wouldn't write a scene like that. Um and we see them later on, well, well past the time. The pub's closed. Everyone's gone. They're playing pinball. 
the, the landlord says, you know, you know, come on now, it's past time, you have to leave now. Colquhoun threatens to arrest him. <laughs> I do love the ambiguity in his relationship with the landlord, where he just, I'm not entirely sure he knows what he's, <laughs> he, what I, point he's trying to make. It's, I think it's the drunk trying to maintain his dignity. And, and they start arguing about the Queen, and eventually just get shoved out into the street. With one last bit of comedy business with his head back through the curtains like Eric Morecambe. <laughs> Alex arrives back home. No one there. So if he goes looking for her, she's not in the nearby shop. She's not in the cafe. Uh, and he eventually goes to rattle the gates at the tube station where there's a sign outside the newspaper hoarding that says, Censor in trouble. Whilst Patricia wakes in the, uh, in the cavern area where she's laying on top of a headless corpse. Yes. This next sequence is the bit... Now, there's a comparison, something that popped into my head that I wanted to make, but um, <clears throat> in the little research, you know, reading I did around general opinions of this film, I didn't see it pop up, so I'm not sure whether I mentioned it or not, but quite early on I had a Texas Chainsaw Massacre feel. The first time we get that long look around the man's abode. I'm going to say abode, not lair. Right. Because that's... And and again here, well, possibly more obviously, in terms of uh, I'm thinking of the scenes in Texas Chainsaw Massacre of <laughs> just where there's no dialogue, just a lot of screaming, yes, and grunting, and people running from each other, in both visually and in terms of the general atmosphere. It's not as hysterical or grotesque as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I couldn't help, and I'm not suggesting as a direct link that. It was inspired by these scenes, but that's just where my mind went. I'd never seen anything quite as extraordinary as that, other than TCM. There does seem to have been a general trend towards that kind of um, visual within horror movies at the time. You have Night of the Living Dead as well. Um, I think you can trace a lot of it to footage and pictures coming out of Vietnam. That the idea of presenting the ravaged human body in this way was suddenly something that was a taboo being broached by the news media and as something that is happening in the world and as something that is um, uh, being created by uh, the actions of powerful forces. So having that transplanted into a horror film setting is a way of acting out those anxieties within a setting that allows um, kind of psychological release. This would have been more more of an issue in America, presumably. Perhaps so, yes. I mean, we do, of course, have the American Not... killing the man at the end of the movie. <laughs> the hero killing the man. The hero who kicks a diseased old man to death. I mean, again, try not to get ahead of ourselves, but it is a bit of a surprise. In a film as unconventional as this, I would not have expected all of our, inverted commas, heroes, our lead characters, to come out unscathed. I was expecting some surprising um, endings for, <laughs> for some of them. Not necessarily too dogmatic in terms of people. Mm. 
I think because it, it, it's more of a it's more of a downbeat ending because the man who is this ultimate figure of tragic degradation and exploitation is beaten to death by the more sophisticated surface dwellers. Yes. Uh, who get away, uh, who are, when, at this point that we've got up to, where the man is uh, trying to communicate with Patricia and she's recoiling from him, horrified by him, treating him as though he's a, uh, mm. some kind of creature rather than a human being. Yes, some sort of Frankenstein's monster. Yes. That having, with her having shown so much sympathy for Manfred earlier in the film, who was a figure of power and authority and uh, clearly an exploiter and abuser of women, she was sympathetic to him. But here's someone who really needs sympathy, who really needs care and concern, and she recalls from him straight away. So there's maybe a bit of the... Um, I don't like using the phrase champagne socialist because that seems unfair, <laughs> but um, uh, fair weather humanitarian, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Colquhoun is turns up for work the following morning with a massive hangover, and um, Alex is waiting for him, carrying um, Patricia's bag. And his first his first words to him are, "You gone drag." <laughs> But uh, Colhoun can't do anything, so on the way on the, on the way out, Alex slams the door, and Colhoun grabs his head in agony, and then calls up for Richardson, the um, the London transport expert. Alex tries to get into the tunnel at Russell Square, where he's stopped by a guard played by no less than Jack Woolgar, hmm. who listeners will recall no. played yes. um, Sergeant Arnold in the Doctor Who story The Web of Fear four years earlier. Which is also largely set in the underground. It is. Well, that gives me that gives me an opportunity to mention something that I was wondering whether I should avoid in case you don't have a sufficient contingent of Doctor Who fans in your audience. But I mean, uh, is this actually this is shot on location? It boasts that in the in the credits. So I assume these, that by location these are it actual we- underground tunnels. So it- they've they've relaxed their standards on no filming since 1967. Yes, Unless they just didn't like the BBC. Because uh, the Web Affair was banned from filming in the London Underground, um, so they simply built sets instead and then got complaints from London Underground that they'd film there secretly because the sets were so convincing. Um, clearly there's been a change of policy. Hmm. Um, I mean, nowadays it's comparatively easy to film in the Underground um, as long as you're not interfering with regular operations. Something that's inevitably going to come up in this discussion is the film Creep which has been covered on a previous cinema limbo and is very, very heavily influenced by Deathline. It's also about um, people trapped inside the London Underground being preyed upon by some tragic subhuman creature. And that took advantage of the uh, current policy, which is uh, that you can film at night or you can film in disused stations because that has scenes filmed at Charing Cross and at Aldwych. Aldwych station's been closed for about 20 years. So I think that this might well be one of the earlier films to have taken advantage of this change in policy. I think the the disused station, I think, is a set. Yeah. Um, because the production design on the film as a whole is very, very impressive. The um, 
the various home spaces are probably all locations, but they look totally real. I think it's just that that disused underground station, I don't think they could have found anywhere that would have been right for it. And even then it would have meant, you know, going into disused underground stations, because there are many disused underground stations to this day. But... There were other tunnels, of course. Yeah. Disused tunnels. Maybe it's... It starts looking less undergroundy, doesn't it, after... Once it gets off the beaten track. Yes. Um, but... Did uh, Blu-ray not tell us? No. Unfortunately, it's a little light on extras. I don't think their, their budget stretched too far, which is a shame. Um, because it's a very good Blu-ray otherwise, and it looks very nice, and the film is very good. So the... The guard says to Alex, as he's trying to run into the tunnel, you can't solve your problems by just giving them to other people. So it's... He's clearly thinking that Alex is going to try and take his own life. But his his instinct is not to necessarily say, oh, don't worry, son, it's not that bad, you know. You know whatever's, whatever problems you've got, they can be fixed. No, don't don't mess up my train journeys. Don't mess up my timetable. It's it's interesting because it is. A, I think it is mostly just a character point, and it's not necessarily saying a character point as in this is a very selfish man who's only worried about his own about getting home on time and not trying to save this possibly save this chap's life. It's also a character point in that that may well be how real people think. That's that part of their world. This is something that comes around again and again. Perhaps that sort of cynicism comes with having to deal with this and eventually stop. Stopping thinking about these people, yeah, as individuals, it becomes so again. I'm just uh, it's a tiny little part, yeah. but he's behaving f- fully in character. There's there's dripping water and rats inside the cavern, and the man starts destroying the rats with a spade, and then bites the head off one of them. Mm-hmm. He reaches out to cut Patricia's throat with a knife, but then he stops. And instead covers her with a blanket. He's, it's only just occurred to him. He's uh, he's come to some kind of realization, and he maybe just wants human contact. And he tries to communicate with her, and he starts saying the one phrase that he's heard over and over again, which is "mind the doors." Hmm. It took me a while to cotton on to what he was saying, which is maybe deliberate. It's, uh... Well, it's to him, it's just a, sa- a, a sequence of sounds, so that it's possible that he's not replicating it perfectly, so, and is therefore not making himself clear. But it's one well, perhaps that's part of the horror of it. If you don't understand at first what he's saying, but then are able to figure it out after a moment, it then go- it goes into that blackly comic territory again. It's very good at navigating that. Blackly commentary. It never, for me, tips over into being funny. Any of the scenes surrounding the man. So um, you've mentioned the similarity to I Am Groot. There's another thing that popped up in my head, and I, I and I checked, I googled this. One or two other people have thought it. Are you a Game of Thrones fan at all? Um, no, I've seen the first few episodes. I plan on catching up with right. the rest at some point before. Uh, the end, but um, uh, no, I'm I'm not particularly familiar with it. Uh, 
Now, it's probably nothing, but um, there's famously a character who only speaks one word. Um, so, fam you know, for several series, he just says Hodor, Hodor, and he is, a, that is a, his own I am Groot moment. He inflects his own name to suggest the emotion or whatever. But uh, in his final episode, through some sort of magical time travel, we, we discover... Do you know this? Do you know where I'm going? Yes, I do. We discover where, where his name came from. And it's, he's trying to, he's desperately trying to say the words, hold the door, hold the door, which then becomes mangled and compressed and just starts to turn into a noise. Hold the door into hold the door, hold the door, hold the door, hold the door. And it doesn't sound dissimilar to the way the man is struggling to articulate mind the doors. Now, this could be a complete nutter coincidence or perhaps George R. R. Martin saw this and was powerfully affected by it. It we could may well never be. Know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes. You are? Yeah, I'm going to say yes. Um, Alex ventures into the tunnel and finds the cave-in area. In particular, um, the, bo the bowler hat of Manfred and the body of the workman. Patricia has made a run for it whilst the man is scrambling over the rock pile again. She tries to hide, but the man approaches her and still is just trying to be understood, just trying to um, communicate with her. And my note there says homelessness. That's, <laughs> it's, it's almost like a, a rich person being approached by a homeless person who just wants uh, a bit of sympathy and a bit of comfort. But she's, again, just cowering, repulsed. And at the end of her tether, um, attacks him. Just as Alex arrives, uh, Alex and Patricia fight him. And at one point, the man manages to get Patricia down on the ground. And I think it's Patricia. And I oh, know, I think it's Alex, actually. It's Alex down on the ground and tries kicking him. But his kicks are so gentle and ineffectual. <laughs> like, um, like Robert De Niro in um, The, the uh, Irishman. <laughs> oh, dear. Robert De Niro has the excuse of being almost 80 years old. Comedy gold. Um, whereas with, the, a, with a 40-year-old face. With a 40-year-old face. Whereas the man is just so you know, frail and diseased and malnourished that he can well, you know, barely hold himself together, let alone actually fight anybody. The risk of sounding picky, is there any particular explanation for why a few scenes earlier he's, he's actually described as having extraordinary strength and we see him fighting three grown healthy men at once and now he suddenly seems he can be overpowered by a mere woman and I say that in terms of the film dynamics not my, not in any way well his what? his biology is all mangled up by you know generations of goodness knows what so maybe it can be uh, got passed on, on that sort of level but yeah there is there is something of a discrepancy there maybe he just does uh, Maybe he just keeps skipping leg day. That'll be it. Because he was about to um to to kill her earlier on, so maybe he was due a meal. Mm. And um He's got maybe it's, And what? now and now he's famished and he's running on empty, running on fumes. Yes. Um so um Alex is able to beat him to the ground and then mm. stamps him to death. He does. Well, I mean, you know. And he's he's still trying to speak as they just leave. <laughs> you know, horribly injured, blood pouring out of his wounds, yeah. and they just leave. So just, 
So to say the least, this is the point where we know for sure that this is not quite the genre we thought it was. No. I mean, Patrick Bateman only imagined he was murdering homeless people. <laughs> um, at this very moment, the police arrive, having pieced together the entire story off screen, um, and meet Alex and Patricia coming the other way, and also Colquhoun finds Manfred's hat. Um Hoon and Richardson venture out into the cavern and we see a very long shot of them walking down the tunnel. Very, very long. Yeah. To the point where I actually forgot that that wasn't the end of the movie. (laughs) When I was watching it again, having seen the film multiple times, I thought... And it's so... It's so difficult to turn your brain off from the genre you think you're going to get because when I see people, a camera holding on, people walking into the distance down a long tunnel, I expect something to rush out of the side tunnel and jump on them. Yeah. And of course it doesn't because it's not that film. They find the the mortuary where all the bodies of the previous generations have lain, which contrasts again with the, the real-life mortuary we saw. Uh, you know, a, a cold clinical... Um, police pathology lab and here you have the bodies laid out with little little trinkets and little totems and they find that the man is embracing the woman that he's managed to crawl back to his home and uh, die in the arms of the woman who he loved and who loved him one can only assume and so they get a lot of sensations and a lot of information at once to have to process. They've missed the action part. They're not in danger, they're in fear of their lives. They're not fighting this man off. They only see the aftermath. Yes. So it enables them to take a, a slightly more objective view than Alex and Patricia were doing earlier on. And it enables them to start um, explain, <laughs> explaining what they're seeing, mm. like the um, epilogue to Psycho. Slightly unnecessary bit of oh, <laughs> yes. psychology, psychology. But not in any way as ham-fisted. It's not telling the audience what they should be thinking. They it's actually quite nice. It's, it's nice to explain that little couplet that you referred to earlier. You've already told, quoted half of it. What a way to die, says one of the police, and what a way to live. Candace Calhoun hmm. which is not only just a nice, nicely phrased but it tells us a lot about him as you said that he's seeing beyond the obvious that the he can see he can see that man's whole life in that moment not just the horror of the case he's been investigating hmm. and that the the, you know, the sarcastic sardonic uh, attitude falls away when confronted by something like this. Yeah. Yes, it's completely unprecedented and kind of unexpected from him. Mm. It sort of suggests that he's he 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 really does care. He's he's maybe not a nice person, but he's a good cop and good enough mm. to you know have a a measure of compassion for the unfortunates who fall into his orbit. And it would, and it does require you to look beyond the moment. And because this case is closed, he has that. He's at leisure to do so. Mm. 
But everyone else is just seeing the moment, the horror. Yes. And he's imagining the horror of decades and decades of this. They're looking at just corpses, but he's looking at the bodies of people. Yeah. They find the, the living space area and Manfred's dead body, which brings that case to a conclusion. And they go back out to the main cavern, the, the platform of the abandoned station. Colquhoun orders them to you know, bring everyone, pathology, everyone down here, keep the press out, and inform MI5. Um, everyone leaves there's a beat of silence and then you just hear the cry in the distance of mind the doors and I like the ambiguity of whether or not the man is still alive or if there's maybe someone else still living down there and then we get then it ends, it's the end credits hmm I think it's a superb film. Um, it's a a tragic story with uh, interesting social undertones to it. It works as a great horror story, but with all the added subtext. I think it's brilliantly directed. It has this fantastic... It captures the, the tone of early 70s London so brilliantly. Like I said before, it has... Everything feels like it's got this film of something over it. <laughs> Pleasance's performance is just staggering. He brings that character to life so perfectly. Um, he's he's fully formed by the end of the movie, and as as you said right at the start, and as I've been thinking for for some time, why wasn't there a series? Why didn't we get to see Colquhoun investigating more weird crime in inner city early seventies London? Yep. I, I think Deathline is the equal of The Wicker Man, and the two should be spoken of in the same breath as ah. the high points of not just British horror of that era, but British horror cinema history. High praise. Well, when I've had more time to think about it, I may well come round to that point of view. Yeah. So I certainly enjoyed it. Thank you for shoving it my way. You're very welcome. So when do we get started on the first draft of the Calhoun Adventures? <laughs> Calhoun on the case. Um, oh no, I've got a window. <laughs> got a window tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> oh, I can't do it then. I've got the gardeners coming around. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Thanks to Paul for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast with almost 80 episodes available so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and Podnose is also on Patreon so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time... Mind the dove! listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.